Hi friends, this is Pastor Brandon, and guess what? I have a genuine B-side, in the sense that what I'm doing here is I'm giving you side B to Sunday's message. It was a load, I feel like there's a lot I was trying to fit in, and perhaps I try to fit too much in, and there's still more. So I was originally going to write a Devo, but it turned out that that was turning into too many words. So I decided to throw some of it down here, and maybe write a Devo a little bit later on this. Uh, so... But what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something I used to do, old school style, and I'm going to try to summarize Sunday's message in 60 seconds or less, and then we will talk about some of this deeper dive, all right? Here we go. In Psalm 127, we're at the very center psalm of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. It's written by Solomon, and it's intentionally placed there. God is mentioned, Yahweh is mentioned 24 times before and 24 times after this psalm, indicating that the way we start the journey is the way we need to finish the journey, all in Yahweh's strength. Then we looked at how um, we actually live, science is showing us, on a 16-hour battery, and we need eight hours of sleep to recharge the damage of 16 hours of being awake. It tells us that we are limited beings, that we cannot use work as a way of trying to simply make ourselves more than our limitations. So what we need is sound work, and sound work understands that, one, we are participants with God, Genesis chapter 1 shows us that. Two, that our work is overflowing from the Davidic covenant, indicated in the text by the words house, city, and children. And three, that our sound work should really flow from a place of vocation more than career. I am distressingly going over 60 seconds. Stop. How does it stop? Stop. There it is. All right. Um... And so once we get down to sound work, it can then lead into sound sleep. And sound sleep reveals, um, it reveals whether or not our work is sound, whether we're working for ourselves or just working out of the overflow of God. Uh, it reveals our loves. You stay up for that which you love. And it reveals our trust. Do we trust God or do we feel like we've got to have a handle on everything and we won't sleep till we get a handle on everything? So sound theology produces sound work. Sound work produces sound sleep. Uh, so go ahead and sleep. It's okay. It's not laziness. It's spiritual. There you go. It's more like a minute and a half. I'm rusty. 90 second summary. Okay. So um, I kind of flew by the Davidic covenant part. If you didn't hear the message, it would really benefit you to hear it because there, for the theology nerds, um, there is a bit of theology in the center of it surrounding the Davidic covenant. Real briefly, the psalm is from Solomon, the son of David. He writes, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then in verse three, it talks about, behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh. So there's these three words, house, city, and children. And um, a commentator I was reading was pointing out that, yeah, it can apply to the homes we build and the cities we live in and our own children. Of course it can apply to that. All of this is true about those. But contextually, the psalm is probably finding its its meaning and significance, especially from the Jews who are singing the psalm on the way to Jerusalem, in the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant... You go to Second Samuel chapter 7, and there you see it. And it's when David wants to build God a house, because God was living in the tabernacle still. He wants to build him a house. Important to see that the word house is the terminology for the temple. It's God's house. So unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. So this is speaking of the temple. The city then, of course, is Jerusalem. This is the city the pilgrims are going to. And... The children then refer to the seed of David, the offspring of David. 
his dynasty, which God said, I will never allow one of your descendants to sit on the throne. You will always have an endless succession of descendants ruling over an endless kingdom. So here we go. The children of David are ruling alongside Yahweh, who rules in his house. And all of this is occurring in the city of Jerusalem. This is the Davidic covenant. Now, of course, it was interrupted briefly. Well, it's been a long pause, actually. Um, in 586, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem also brought the destruction of the temple. Yes, it was rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah, and Herod made it even more beautiful in Jesus' time. But there's no record that the Shekinah glory of God revealed through the cloud ever re-entered that temple. And the Jews, and T. Wright argues rather convincingly, the Jews knew it. They knew that the temple was an empty hole of a shell, that there was no content inside of it, that it was simply, it, it was like the American flag for Americans. It was a symbol of who they were as God's chosen people. Uh, okay. So the fall of Jerusalem at 586 when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, it also destroyed the dynasty. There was no more king. Israel was no longer an independent nation. Now, the sons of David did not stop. There was always a line of children of David. But the last one to sit on, an, on a throne in Jerusalem was Zedekiah. So the Babylonian exile happens. No one gets to sit on the throne. They return to Jerusalem. No one gets to sit on the throne. You have, um, from their return, you have like in the... in. At the end of the Old Testament, you have like the 400 years of silence. No one sits on the throne. There's a small little period where the Hasmonean dynasty is, is established, but they're not genuine sons of David. It's a very short period, about 80 to 100 years. Then the Romans take over, and that's the Jesus time. But that's also when Jesus comes. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 tells us straight out, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that Matthew reverses Abraham and David. Abraham came before David, but he says the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins his gospel with two of the major covenants, the Davidic covenant, which we already discussed, and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was very simple. Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of the scattered mess of rebellious humans, the fall of the Tower of Babel. They are gathered and they scatter because of the judgment. He takes Abraham out of those scattered people and says, you, you will launch a new people, not a people who are concerned with building towers upward, but a people who fulfill my Genesis 128 commission to be fruitful and multiply, that you are going to go around the world. Your people and your blessing will cover the world. And at the end of that covenant, he says, um, uh, through you and your offspring, I will bless all the families of the earth. So God's taking Abraham, he's going to build him into a nation so that they are a blessing on the earth, but then this people will also extend the blessing to all the other peoples of the earth. We Gentiles, a major plot point of the New Testament, are included now in this blessing. We were part of that covenant. So now we are blessed as a result. Um, that word blessing, by the way, mentioned five times in Genesis chapter 12, echoes the five times the word curse is used after the fall in Genesis 3. 
So from Genesis 3 to 12, from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, the word curse shows up five times. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 wipes all five of those out with three verses by saying, I'm going to bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and you will bless all the families of the earth. Isn't that interesting? So Abraham's pulled out of all the people, a new Adam. He's given a land, a new Eden, and they are to repopulate. So the land is in place and the offspring are in place. That's really what the Old Testament is mostly about. It's about land. It's about seed. Seed being people, but you get the play on word. The people are to be fruitful in the land. And so the Davidic covenant comes into play because the land now becomes a kingdom and the seed now becomes a dynasty. Okay, that's how that works. Now, this whole emphasis on land and seed uh, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Of course, you have Eden. Eden is lost. Eden's the land. So God is all about giving land back to his people. And when you read in, in Revelation chapter 21, it actually surprises a lot of our um, old school theology, which wasn't ever wrong. It was, it just never went clear enough that heaven is actually not in some distant remote place. Heaven is coming to earth in the end. Now, I don't know what happens when you die today. That's a much longer discussion. And I could talk about that maybe some other time. Um, Wherever that heaven is, I don't know. But the ultimate end time, forever heaven, will be coming to earth. The new heaven, the new earth. Land. Eden restored. But the seed aspect, the seed is playing into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When after they fall, God then says, all right, this is what's going to happen. And so he talks to the serpent and says, cursed are you above all livestock, and you will crawl on the belly, and you will eat dust all your life. Okay, those are themes repeated throughout the Psalms, by the way. Uh, and then in this verse 2, verse 15. This is called, by the way, the Proto-Evangelium. It means, very fancy theological word for the first gospel. 3.15. I will put enmity. That's a word for hostility or fighting or war. I will put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. Notice the use of the word offspring. That's the ESV's word for what the New King James often uses as seed. Same idea. Generations, genealogies, offspring, seed. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of a major theme in the Bible. Land and seed. So the serpent seed, the woman seed are not going to get along. And then it concludes. He, the woman seed shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, and the image is that he's probably doing it with his heel, but as he crushes the serpent, his heel gets wounded. There you go. But the serpent knows his end. His head will be crushed because the seed of the woman will prevail. Now, the seed of the woman, that's a theme throughout all of Genesis, right? Abraham's called, you're going to be a nation, but his wife has trouble bearing, right? There's no seed. It's not happening. Um, then God miraculously makes it happen. See, he's showing us that the seed is not simply a biological process. The seed is something theological. It's something God is sowing. It's something God is birthing in the world. And so Sarah miraculously conceives and she gives birth to Isaac, right? And the narrative continues. Uh, Isaac and um, 
Oh, I always get Rachel and Rebecca mixed up. It's Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca, they have uh, twins, right? More seed. But that, that those twins were only after she had trouble conceiving. She prayed and God said, okay, you will have twins. And then we're finding out which one is going to get the blessing. See, you will be blessed, the Abrahamic covenant. So we find out the seed goes to Jacob, not Esau. And then, of course, Jacob and his wives fight over who's going to have babies. And at first, his favorite wife, Rachel's, conceiving none. Leah's conceiving a ton. His handmaids are conceiving a ton. Then Rachel finally gets some. And there's all this havoc about all the girls fighting over Jacob. Because to the woman in this time and in these stories, bearing the seed, having the offspring, was what they saw as their vocation. This wasn't just some, um, you know, conservative traditional viewpoint like, oh, it's just our woman's job. It was a theological viewpoint. We want to be the bearer of the offspring of the seed. We want to carry the victory forward. So Genesis becomes a really long story about land and seed. Of course, Exodus picks that up. We see the seed is multiplied. Now they got to get to the land. Um, and so that's a lot of the story of the Bible. Land and seed promised to Abraham. Then we see in David, the land becomes a kingdom, right? And it's in uh, the promised land and Jerusalem's the capital, it's the city. And the offspring, the seed becomes very specifically now the lineage of David. So wrapping all that up, Matthew then just with one simple sentence that we could just easily say, what does that mean? One simple sentence brings the entire Bible to its climax by simply saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's he saying? Read it like this. The book of the seeds or the offspring of Jesus the Christ, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. See what he's doing? It's all coming together right here in the story of Jesus. That is why Matthew takes the time to write a genealogy, which us moderns don't see as an exciting way to open a book of good news. Right? You know how it goes. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And there it goes for so many names. Now, there's three sets in this genealogy. Uh, some translations say begat, and so they're often known as the begats. There are three sets, so that's what's interesting. If you go down to Matthew 1, verse 17, it says, All the generations... From Abraham to David were 14 generations. Now, they weren't literally 14. What's happening here in this timeline is that they're just naming some significant names or they're streamlining the story. Matthew's trying to get it down to 14. Why? Because 14 is the numerical value for the name David. In Hebrew, each letter has a number corresponding. Like, for example... Our A would be 1, our C would be 3, our E would be 5, and so forth. Um, David, when you add up the numerical value of his name, comes out to 14. So Matthew's editing. He's condensing. This could be longer if you want. Do you remember um, how old movies generally put the credits at the beginning of the movie? And it would take like a good five minutes before the movie actually gets going. Well, we've learned how to get people's attention quicker, so we put the credits at the end. Matthew 
doesn't see the genealogy as, oh, let's wait for the story. He sees this as important framing of the story. The story begins with these names. Okay, so uh, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation, the exile, to the Christ, 14 generations. So here's a nice set of Three sets of 14, and they're all telling a story. Set one says it's from Abraham to David. There it is. Abraham to David. We already discussed the covenant from Abraham to David and how it climaxes in David. But then we say, oh no, what's going to happen to the land and the seed? They get lost, right? David's descendants don't carry their part of the covenant. They don't follow God. They try to set up everything their way. So from David to the exile, 14 generations. And then from the exile to Christ, 14 generations. Christ, the way Matthew's setting this up is that Christ is the answer to the exilic problem that threatens the Davidic covenant. You see that? Abraham to David. Yay, we have a covenant, a land, a seed, and we'll go forever. Exile. Oh. God broke his promise. Christ. No, he didn't. Here's the fulfillment. So Christ is the seed. Christ is also the land. And he will bring us to a literal land as well. But all of this, Ephesians, by the way, talks of Christ as a land. Uh, talking about him as our inheritance and corresponding many aspects of Ephesians to Joshua in which Israel enters the land. So for now, Christ is both the seed and the land. And in fact, in fact, what I think Matthew's genealogy also wants to do is to include us. So, okay, 14 genealogies to David, 14 genealogies to the exile, 14 genealogies to Christ, and 14 genealogies to you and I. See, Christ is in the middle of an ongoing story. We see the names that lead up to him, but there are names that come out from him. As John's gospel says, he gave us the right to become children of God. In other words, when we have faith in Christ, when we follow Christ, we are joined into this offspring of Abraham, this offspring of David, the offspring of Christ. We become part of the seed. We are the seed of the woman conquering, crushing, smashing the head of the serpent. I like that. And so we are part of this genealogy. We're part of it. And what really comforts me is that the genealogies do not mention the accomplishments or the credentials of any of the people in this list. They're just names. This person begat this person, or this person fathered this person, married this person, fathered this person. We just have a thread of relationship, a thread of love, a thread of fathering, of parenting, of mothering, of birthing. That's all we have. This is a genealogy not of accomplishment. It is not a genealogy of those who have arrived. It's a genealogy of those who are becoming sons and daughters, offspring, seed of the Christ. Is that not good stuff or what? I think we often feel insignificant because we haven't arrived. We aren't saintly enough. No problem. 
Christ says. You're still my genealogy. Read the genealogy closely. They're names. And some of these names were nobodies. And some of these nobodies were miserable failures. There's even a Gentile in this list. That's good stuff. Ruth, how about that? How about that? So, some of these names you recognize, some of them you don't recognize at all. That's how it is. The family of Christ is not about, I've arrived. It's about becoming. That's why he became human flesh, to show us that it's about growing into where Christ has brought us in this world. Christ measures things so differently than the world does. And the reason I'm stressing this so much is because what he wants to simply do is show that his seed, you and I, we all have a function to play simply by existing as his people. Did you hear that? Simply by being a follower of Jesus, by being one of his children, by being a part of this long, never-ending dynasty, this long genealogy of names, you are playing a vital role in his plan. It's not those we celebrate in our halls of faith or write biographies about or make documentaries about. Those are not the only ones accomplishing anything. You by existing, you by becoming who you are in Christ, you are accomplishing everything. And that's what I want to get back to in Psalm 127. I want you to listen carefully to how Solomon talks about children and we'll loop it here. He says, 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So you can see the warrior pulling back on the arrow about to fire an arrow, or pulling back on the bow about to fire an arrow. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So, Christ has his quiver filled with all of his children. Filled, think about 2,000 years of Christianity. And if we want to talk about the people of God before the church, like the covenant of Abraham and Israel and all that, yeah, even more. We ha He has a quiver full of arrows. There is no stopping our Christ warrior. Now, he concludes, blesses the man who fills his quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Is that not good or what? Okay, so the picture is, of course, you're in your city. Usually in cities, it was at the gate where disputes were solved. That's where you had the court. Judges would sit at the gate. And if anything needed to come up, you would sue people, you'd talk about, you'd settle accounts right there in the public. The public became the witness as the judge made the verdict. So it was an honor-shame society. It held everyone accountable. Um, that that's likely the picture that's being evoked here. But can you not see? Oh, of course. So if you had a lot of kids, that means you have a lot of people backing you on a case. But can you not also see the undertones here of the cosmic battle, the spiritual battle, the epic battle going on for salvation? This is hearkening back to Genesis 3 verse 15. The woman versus the serpent, their seeds at war, at this everlasting war, until finally the seed of the woman, who, by the way, Mary births Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, said, it brought the genealogy to Joseph and then went out of its way to say, who was married to Mary who gave birth to the Christ? 
He was trying to get us to see the seed of the woman is here. So the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent through Jesus at the cross and in the resurrection and the ascension. His head is smashed. Yep, it came with a great terrible bruising, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and the persecution of the world, of the devil against the dragon, the beast against the people of God. Yes, our heels are bruised, but it's nothing compared to his head being smashed in. And that is behind the text here. As Christ has his quiver full of his sons and daughters, there is no chance. He will never be shamed. We will never be shamed before the enemy. He will be defeated because the dynasty, the seed the kingdom goes on forever and that we are the children of it, of this covenant. We are the testament that it keeps going. And so you, by existing, by becoming a follower of Christ, have become one of the numerous arrows which Christ will use to pierce the heart of the dragon. Is that not amazing? So, Christian work. <laughs> I don't think we pay enough attention to simply raising human beings. Being a good parent is one of the most important jobs in the world, in God's world. And some of us aren't parents or we're past parentage. You've still got kids. You still got people around and maybe you are single. You've never had kids. You don't plan on having kids. You don't want to get married, whatever. You know what? There are children who have biological parents, but no spiritual mothers or fathers. Maybe you can be that. We, or just broaden this a little bit. We don't give enough reverence to the relationships. And that's one of the things I love about the genealogy in Matthew chapter one is that the emphasis there is not on, and he did this and he did that. It's on this person is connected to this person is connected to this person is connected to this person. And at the end of that connection is the Christ. And through the Christ, the connection continues. Isn't it Colossians chapter two, which prays something like that we would be knit in the bond of peace or the, no, knit in the spirit of love. Ah, I don't remember. It says knit though. Someone can look it up for me. <laughs> um, we are connected. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Look, therefore walk worthy of the calling which you've received. And then he goes on to say, By bearing with one another in the unity of the bond of the spirit of peace. And then he goes on to name, We are of one baptism, one Savior, one Father, one Lord. And he names the way, he says the name one, the word one, seven times. That's, that's the, that's the biblical picture of fulfillment of a new creation. We're a new humanity and we're walking in unity. We're walking connected because we are not just individuals. We are a genealogy. And so I want to close with this concept. The word genealogy is very interesting in the Bible. Of course, Matthew begins with this genealogy for the many reasons we just pointed out, but also it's the first verses of the New Testament. Not that Matthew knew that when he wrote it, but Matthew is intentionally placed first in the New Testament because it strikes an eerie balance with Genesis. Genesis is the book of 
genealogies. Genealogies. Uh, Genesis, by the way, is the Latin version of the Greek word. That's where it came from, right? There's a Greek word, it was Latinized, and now in English it reads Genesis. And all of those, the Latin version and the Greek version, refer to um, generation or begetting. Don't you see? So Genesis, we often call the book of beginnings, and it is, but that also means the book of birthing, the birth of, or the book of begetting, the book of who fathered who, and the book literally is about genealogies. That is the theme of Genesis. I know you know that in Genesis, there are genealogies that run throughout it, like fat marbled in a steak. It's what makes it so juicy and also so terrifying to read all at the same time. But there are 10 of these genealogies. They're called teledots in Hebrew. And the word teledot does literally mean genealogy, but it has a broader picture. Because the way a genealogy works is you have the father figure, and then the children are what became of the father. And that's what the word teledot literally means is what became of. Or in other words, this is what we call a story. Here's a character. Here's what became of the character. And so it is absolutely appropriate to translate the word teledot into the word story. So I want to give you just a couple examples of how this sounds in Genesis. After Genesis 1, which is basically the prelude showing God creating everything, it goes to the first teledot. And it says, Genesis 2 verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Okay, so let's reread that. The, this is the story of the heavens and the earth. Or this is what became of the heavens and the earth. Or this is what the heavens and the earth begot or fathered or parented. Or here's the long string of events that are all tied into the heavens and the earth. Isn't that great? So you have Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, the Cain and Abel and their sons and all that coming out of this. Then Genesis 5. This is the book of the story of Adam. Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the story of Noah. I like that. And so here's the point. We are all part of a story. We're part of this long line of connections, of successions, this dynasty, this this person connected to that person. The, this is what became of all of this. We're all connected. We're all in this. There's one long story being told. And that means that your life, your life is but a chapter inside this story. And your chapter, your life will only make sense when contextualized with the chapters or the lives around it, as they all connect to progress the story to its climax. Isn't that great? Now, that's different, though, than what the world says. The world says your life is the story. But what we're saying is there is only one story. It's the story of Christ delivering us from the serpent. We are the chapters making that story happen. We are the chapters. So in other words, I am not a story from beginning to end. I am just a part of the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the God. I am simply a part of that. My life is a chapter. So what that means is I don't have to arrive at whatever it means to arrive to whoever you want to be. If your life is a story, you have to arrive or your story fails. But our lives are not stories, they're chapters. So that means they're about becoming. 
They're about characters interacting. They're about introducing one more step to the plot. That is why we're here. The great story, the great arrival, the great accomplishment all happens in Christ. And so, again, my chapter only makes sense when it is on the heels of the chapter before me or when it is in context of the chapter coming after me. And so we all must understand our place in the great genealogy, the great story. And the way the genealogy is recorded is, a, is names, the names and their relationships, not how great they were, that this person arrived, this person got this degree, this person accomplished that. None of that. Just names, just chapters in the story bringing us to Christ, the one who arrived, the one who accomplished everything. So go live as a chapter, be an arrow in Christ's quiver and know that just by existing, just by, if you're hearing this, we are part of the victory. So let's go raise more offspring yes literally in labor but also let's go save people like let's go share let's let's include the the christians who are on the fringe and don't really know what their life is about let's fill the quiver simply by being followers of christ we are advancing the victory so go into the land be the seed um and be blessed i hope you guys have a great week um, I know some people, it seems, are slowly returning to work. Some people are still in their mandated shutdown. It seems like we're all just kind of crawling out slowly. But hey, whatever stage of life you're at right now, you matter. Keep going. Be God's child. All right? Looking forward to seeing a lot of us face-to-face someday soon. But in the meantime, it's nice to have your ear. It's nice to read your emails and get your phone calls and all that stuff. So until then, though. Grace and gratitude. Thank you for listening. This is Pastor Brandon.